Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. My name's Justin. And we have a fantastic episode ahead for all of you. Uh, this week's guest is Miss Dorothy McAuliffe, the former First Lady of Virginia and a current GU Politics fellow. Yeah, so check out her discussion groups, which are what time, Christian? They are Monday at 2 p.m. Monday in the at Baker 2. Living Room. In the Baker Living Room. And check out her uh, office hours as well if there's anything that piques your interest that we talk about with her on the pod today and want to uh, find out more info. Um, but before we do that, as always, follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. Let us know your thoughts. Shoot us an email. Um, stop us on campus. Really anything. Don't stop us on campus. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't do that. That'd be a little weird. Christian's not a real people person. <laughs> I'm a social media person. Don't talk to me on campus. That's fair. You wouldn't uh, even see me on campus. <laughs> all right. Let's get into it. Um, starting out with our segments. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Great, let's spin the second wheel then. Ah, what's it gonna land on? <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> <laughs> we have Would You Rather, our question for Would You Rather this week work in state politics or federal politics? Christian Mesa, what is uh, your answer? This one's easy. Uh, I'm from California, so state politics. California is beautiful. Really? Yeah, uh, it's it's a simple one for me. Uh, California state politics, I mean, okay, so number one, you're running the fifth largest economy in the world. So uh, let's just couch it right there. Um, and the fact that California and California politics is very interesting because it's like, who can be more liberal, um, which uh, without sounding like insane. Um, and I mean, just I mean, just look at the California Senate election this year, you're having mm-hmm. like a someone who's worked in the Senate for a million years and Diane Feinstein, and yet you have more liberal Kevin DeLeon running up against him. Uh, against her so like that's basically just like couching california politics in a nutshell um and i think it's a really interesting place to work and to see politics in action um and to see like state assembly and state senate in california are like fascinating to watch because like there are so many different competing interests in california that you have to understand um and it's just a fascinating place to work makes a lot of sense i think i'd go federal though partially just to be contrarian but also (laughs) (laughs) No, but also, like, there's a, I don't know, there's something really cool about working in a place like the Capitol or in D.C., um, why I came to D.C. for school, first of all, um, and why I'll probably stay here afterwards to work. Um, and, yeah, you're just, I mean, you're shaping policy that literally impacts every single American, uh, which is, you know, a privileged job, I think. Counter. California has beaches. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Let's spin that wheel. And next up, we have Grind Our Gears. Christian, what grinds your gears about special elections? Very topical. So many things. So many things grind my gears about special elections. Really? Let's um, hear. Okay. Uh, I, have, I have two, but I'll go with the one that bothers me more. Right. Um, you are looking at a couple... Okay, so in the case of Pennsylvania, what? How many people ended up voting in there? 250,000, right? 300,000? That sounds about right. Yeah. Like, you're looking at 300,000 votes and trying to take that vote and couch it to the entire country. Um, and you see this happen literally every time there's any special election. It's like, this is a sign. This is a sign of what's to come. And like, statistically speaking, no, um, it's not <laughs> because you're looking at a singular district. Um, and sure, like there are general trends that you might maybe be able to make an argument about. But like at the end of the day, like you're looking at 300,000 people in the span of, you know, a population of 300 million. Um 
And so I just don't think it really makes a lot of sense to make a trend um, or to make an argument about a trend um, in one single special election. That being said, I've done this. So, <laughs> you know, there's that Guilty. caveat there. No, that's a really good point. Um, and my point's kind of similar. Uh, what grinds my gears about special elections is not necessarily like a full-on bad thing, but really just the over hype and attention that it gives the actual candidates in comparison to like their other future colleagues. So, I mean, we've seen this in like the past couple of special elections, like people like John Ossoff, like Connor Lamb, who just won in Pennsylvania, like they are like rock stars when they come to the Hill for in like what would be a regular election year, just like another race that like, you know, the Democrats won or flipped or anything like that. Like, yeah, it's like the Georgia special election Karen Handel ended up winning. Yeah. I couldn't tell you a single thing that she's done. No, but you know, the, the, the day she walked on the Capitol, there was like, there was cameras, there was news people. It's like, <laughs> what day's Karen Handel starting? It's like, okay, great. Like, I'm sure they're all fantastic people. And again, it's not entirely bad. It highlights like, you know, the less of the rock star type politicos who are actually running for Congress and, and in Congress. Um, but at the same time, it just like compared to the, co- the, the their eventual colleagues, it's, definitely an outweighed focus that they get no that makes a lot of sense i agree um all right moving on uh let's introduce dorothy uh so as we said a little earlier dorothy mcauliffe is the former first lady of virginia and a current gu politics fellow um she has been in and around politics her entire life Mm -hmm. as she'll talk about um and has a really interesting story that i think a lot of foyas can uh and people in dc can really understand i mean she came to dc she worked in dc um when she was really young she uh, studied in BC at Catholic, um, and also went to Georgetown Law, uh, which is really great, um, and has really taken a new look at what being a first lady in the Commonwealth of Virginia actually means, um, and she'll talk a lot about that as well. Great, let's bring her in. Dorothy McAuliffe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you all. We are beyond excited to have you on uh, this week and just to hear about your experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to get started um, sort of where you got started with your early life. Um, You did grow up with politics more or less surrounding your early life. Could you talk to us a bit about that and how that sort of impacted your desire to go into politics and public service later on? Sure. I uh, had a wonderful growing up in Central Florida and both of my parents were very uh, community and civically engaged. Uh, my father had been active. He was an attorney, is an attorney. Uh, and at the time I was growing up, he had been active um, with local and statewide candidates in Florida. And around 1976, I think it was a sophomore in high school, you know, a lot of times if dad was meeting with a candidate or something was going on with, you know, one of the races we had, the, sometimes he'd have business meetings at home. But uh, I came home from school one day and there were a lot of cars. And uh, I, so I came in, I asked my mom, I'm, mom, what's up? And my mom says, well, uh, there's somebody here and he's running for president and it's Jimmy somebody. And he's <laughs> just finished as the governor of Georgia. And that was a new one. Like we'd never had a presidential candidate before. And that was the beginning of, you know, my real interest in the national political scene that grew up with, you know, a family that was very engaged locally. And then, um, as the story goes, um, later in that re-election year, that cycle of 79 is when I actually met my husband. And then my life course was set uh, on, a, uh, on a great path and uh, a lot of fun. But 
you know, my mom had a father who was president of the American Medical Association. And as in, he was really older uh, during World War II for a, um, for a soldier to enlist in World War II. He was in his 40s. Um, but he, you know, that civic kind of commitment to public duty mm-hmm. uh, was really instilled in her as well. And he was a medical doctor and joined the Army in World War II. And then, uh, as I said, my father, who had always really been interested in local state politics and then uh, really got our whole family involved and engaged in the national uh, presidential federal uh, elections. So that's how I came into this. And uh, it's that's how we have uh, we have five children. And all of them, I'm very proud to say, are uh, interested in politics, some more than others, um, <laughs> but are paying attention. Uh, even the youngest one, who's 15, um, who doesn't love all the attention his dad got as governor, <laughs> um, but it didn't like being driven to school by state police. But uh, I, I feel we've built a culture of, of civic engagement and public service in our family. We have another son who's in the Marine Corps, and um, all of our children have done some sort of you know, extended public community service uh, through internships and things, much like I think every student at Georgetown seems a to have done. For sure. And uh, in, fact, in fact, you did as well at Catholic, right? Yes. So I actually, when I was at Catholic U, I transferred there my uh, junior, senior year. I worked, one of the reasons I chose Catholic over Georgetown undergrad, I'm a Georgetown law graduate, but I went to Catholic U because of the Metro. And I was really, I think, three stops from Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And I worked for my congressman, Bill Nelson, who is now a senator, still in the Senate. And, uh, and then I worked at the Energy and Commerce Committee one summer between college and law school. I worked for John Din- Chairman John Dingle, who, if you don't follow his tweets, please do. <laughs> He's a retired now, but he is an amazing uh, voice on Twitter, John Dingle. Um, so, yes. And I also did some advocacy work um, with the Wildlife Defense Fund. Um, and so tried to get through my... Um, academic, you know, college years and law school years, a, a taste of a little bit of everything related to public service, and um, then ended up going into private practice uh, for several years after law school, banking and securities regulation, and had always hoped to get back to um, public law, and uh, just found a different path towards that when my husband ran for governor. So it's been a great, great life so far. Lots <laughs> left to do, but thank you for asking. So talk to us a little bit about that first uh, and second run for governor. Um, and talk to us about what your role was on the campaign. I mean, you were constantly on the campaign trail. Um, where do you feel like you had the biggest impact? So I, I, so, you know, the 2009 campaign, we were in a, a primary with three other Democrats, good friends, two other Democrats, very good friends, and uh, we didn't win that one. So that was a little bit more short-lived of a campaign. Um but then went to work and tried to help uh, Gray Deeds, of course, become governor. He is now still in the state Senate and a very good friend. And then Brian Moran, our other opponent at that time, is with Terry's Secretary of Public Safety. So all great Democrats unified and came together and we're all great friends. But that was a hard one, but it was a, a very short-lived campaign. 2013 was, uh, you know, Terry was the only Democrat on the on, only candidate on the Democratic side. And so we had a full-fledged, from the beginning, year-long year campaign, and I felt like, so his main theme, running for governor, was building a new and diversified Virginia economy, jobs in the economy, um, and so things like workforce training, public education, all the things we're passionate about um, were kind of the platforms within the campaign. I focused on something that we have all, 
you know, as parents, we face every day, but not in the same way that most parents that are struggling and living close to or in poverty. And that is um, food. Food had always been important to me, food access. What are, what are, since the day our children were born, you know, what are they eating? Are they getting enough? Are they growing? Are they thriving? And uh, when we were, you know, studying all of our policy and what we were going to be, how are we going to be attack, attacking the issues, looking at a statewide um, statewide solutions in Virginia, state-specific, um, it became clear that agriculture was the number one private business. And so there's great opportunity of helping agriculture grow and thrive, and yet recognizing that um, one in seven Virginia children are food insecure and go hungry. And it doesn't have to be that way. They're natural. There are federal resources through the child nutrition programs that are available, and Virginia was leaving tens of millions of dollars on the table annually that was not being drawn down by schools with the USDA reimbursement for school meals. That's breakfast, lunch, after school, and summer meals through the schools. So looking at this idea of a thriving agricultural economy, and yet families and children who are struggling with hunger, um, food being the most basic need we all have every single day, uh, I decided that I would, that would be, I had a long list of policy items that I care about and that, that are part of this whole building the new economy, Terry wanted to invest in wind and solar and the environment. And uh, that is something also very near and dear to me. Um, so many things, uh, social justice, uh, justice, you know, um, uh, you know, um, well, those are my words here. The uh, juvenile justice reform, mm -hmm. lots of issues that we have to focus on, even within public education. But to me, connecting this ability of there being dollars available to support schools and teachers who are trying to teach children. And we know children can't be hungry to learn if they're just plain hungry. And so focusing on the available dollars and then the win-win of helping support agriculture, which by the way, was the fun part of the campaign because I got to go all through the rural parts of Virginia, <laughs> which are absolutely beautiful from, you know, the shore to the mountains, to the valley. Um, so the rural parts of Virginia, Charlottesville, uh, that's where I spent most of my time promoting local ag, but also trying to make this connection between local ag and our food system and what are we feeding our kids in school. So the quality of school meals as well. And if we can make it easier uh, to, to create that farm to school pipeline, we can teach children about the importance of what they eat, how it impacts their health, to create lifelong learning habits, and also make sure they have the best day they can possibly have mm -hmm. every single day in school. And so, that, I guess, the big takeaway is that in a campaign, there are just a lot of different issues that um, to focus on. Um, my husband had to focus on all of them. <laughs> I got to really focus in and, 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 I, I, and on the issue of agriculture, education, and children's health, and, and basically children um, and the future, because that is our future workforce. That's If we have educate, well-educated children, we're going to be able to attract and grow our economy by attracting and growing our business space. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. So as you are kind of having these big policy discussions and considering what your priorities are going to be and how you're going to push them forward, you're also running basically every hour of every day to different campaign stops, fundraisers, things like that. Is there a single moment or two, um, some ones that were either your most you know memorable moments or some of the most rewarding moments from that campaign that you want to talk about? I think the most rewarding thing about that campaign in terms of traveling the state, it was such a, an incredible opportunity to get to know different communities, the different cultures, the geographic regions, but more importantly, the people who are really committed to doing good work and good things and all across the board and across 
the nonprofit world, the business community, schools. The thing is, you know, people can get very cynical about politics. Mm -hmm. You do a campaign and you meet people that really care about where the Commonwealth of Virginia is headed and what's in store for our communities in the future. That was the best part of the campaign. I think the funniest thing was the idea that uh, we, as many as all campaigns do now, at a certain level have these political trackers that follow candidates around and try to get them to goof up when they're speaking. Oh, yeah. Or to really record what they say when they don't think the cameras are on. Um, so it's fair. I think it's fair. And we had a particularly um, aggressive couple of trackers, uh, <laughs> one in particular who followed Terry everywhere. They didn't track me as much, uh, uh, not, not really at all. Spouses are generally kind of off, off limits. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the candidate, so whenever I was with Terry, we just had, he had this game going of like, how are we going to, you know, he, he never mind having a tracker uh, in this space, you know, uh, listening to him talk, that wasn't it. It was more game to him. Like, how are we going to avoid the tracker or let them not (laughs) know where we're going, what the next event is like really mess up their day. Right. And so not let him follow us. One of the favorite stories we both have is being in Highland County. And, you know, we went to a farmer's market we went to the community center. We had, you know, we're talking to wonderful young people that are trying, teaching children how to grow their own vegetables. We're talking to farmers. I mean, there really wasn't, I don't know what this tracker thought he might possibly get <laughs> at the farmer's market in Highland County. But then we go up to the community center. He does his event, um, you know, speaks to the crowd and it's just community leaders and the public. And um, so then we are leaving and we're going um, back to the homestead, which was where the first gubernatorial debate was going to be. That's why we were out there on this particular trip. And um, Terry just said, all right you know, how are we going to lose them this time? And one of the local um, Democratic committee members said, oh, why don't I take you? Just pop in my car. We'll leave George, who drove us all over Virginia, in the in the, in the car, and they'll think that we're still in the car. And so literally we got in this little car and um, snuck out the back, literally laying down on the floorboards, <laughs> like a complete bank robbery getaway. Like a James Bond. Yeah, like, and, like you know, dust, the tires are kicking up, and the, and the tracker is just sitting there, you know, they, they, they were giving us a report from the front seat. Yeah, he's still sitting there waiting for the car. And so it was just, you know, you just have to make it fun. Politics can be very fun. You know, I, I, it's unfortunate that uh, you watch the news, you, you know, it's easy to say that it's all negative, that people just are, you know, it is true that there's a lot of trust lost in politics, but when you go out on a campaign, you really see people who care and really want to make the world better, and that, that's the best thing about it. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Senator Chuck Grassley. A Tweet of the Week favorite. A Tweet of the Week favorite, really. We should really just have a Chuck Grassley segment <laughs> uh, from now on, because his tweets are fantastic. Uh, anyway, he tweeted on March at 4 a.m. What? I think is important to remember. What? Uh, the population of Ireland, Ireland flag emoji, is doubling. Felt <laughs> <laughs> like Dublin. <laughs> um, and I just, I just want to know what was going through his head. Can always count on Senator Grassley for some great puns. I just want to know, like, he was, <laughs> did he just think that pun and was like, yep, he was going on Twitter. He was going on Twitter for my, uh, 
205,000 followers. Jeez. Maybe he was testing, you know, to be fair, maybe he was testing out, like, some lines for his next uh, stand-up comedy. Yeah, that's fair. You know, the big, uh, the big Irish launch in D.C. So you ended up winning that campaign, uh, which... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, your role as First Lady. Um, I want to start off by reading a quote that was written about you in the Washington Post that I think, uh, or maybe doesn't describe, um, but I think it does. Uh, the quote says, as the first lady entered the hearing room, an observer whispered to the four-star admiral, okay, so you brought in the big guns. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about that. You know, how did you view the role of first lady and, you know, what was your time on a day-to-day basis spent doing? So, well, you know, I spent a lot of time working with different groups, go, visiting schools, uh, other other groups who are focused on, whether it was the YMCA, Boys and Girls Club, um, you know, the, the, our state agencies trying to um, elevate their work and the work around food insecurity, children, uh, military families, military children was another issue that I, I really loved working on. And that particular story is from uh, one of... Um, Terry's cabinet member is a former four-star Admiral John Harvey, who I I just loved working with him. I loved visiting our military bases. You know, we have so many military installations in Virginia, um, over 30 in the most of any state. So it's a big part of our economy, but it's also, you know, these families and these incredible uh, people who sacrifice so much for us um, are just a great addition to our community. So whatever I could do to, to, to make them feel like, you know, the state of the Commonwealth of Virginia was there for them. We want their children. I was, we always made the joke, we want their children to, you know, children, military kids transfer on average nine to 12 times, but uh, we want them to come back at the end of the day and be part of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So we want to give them the best experience. But um, I, that particular piece of legislation was about um, making sure that we are, our schools are um, reporting the number of military students that they have, both for federal grant dollars that support local schools with guidance counselors, other resources to help transition kids who transition so often mm-hmm. and who have family members deployed. Um, uh, it just brings resources into the schools, but also so teachers are aware, we're all aware of what we need to do to help uh, these kids who really um, also sacrifice and serve when their families do. So um, the big gun thing, I mean, you know, I would have said John Harvey was the biggest gun in that room, (laughs) Uh, but we had a great, you know, I think it was a little, other first first ladies, um, Linda Robb, Linda Johnson, Rob, who was first lady, and all the other first ladies also had 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 been um, had had issues, as in you know many some choose to have have their own career and and they're not involved in politics. But in Virginia, it had been a tradition that you know they were advancing uh, different ideas and, and initiatives around education and educational access or senior literacy or um, Ann Holton, another you know Tim Kaine's wife was. Um, very active and so but not as many had spent as much time actually going to advocate Mm -hmm. in the general assembly and i think it was a little bit novel that i on the issues that i cared about military families child hunger that i really um didn't hesitate to go over and have a conversation and i always found the doors open and welcoming and yet i think that comment goes to oh you know we haven't seen this very often so 
what's she going to do? What's she going to mm-hmm. say? And, and, you know, I think it was more tongue in cheek, like that, that's the big gun. Um, but I, I always felt very welcomed and, and, uh, a lot of mutual respect, even though we might be of different parties and we were working with the legislature of a different party. Um, but I have only, um, we found a lot of common ground. My husband did as well, not on everything, but for, um, it was a, it was a really great experience. And in fact, I was just down in Richmond this week because, uh, you know, they are considering the budget and it's in the legislative session now. Terry's budget is, you know, the outgoing governor leaves the, the budget for the incoming. And it's kind of an odd system. It's a biennium budget and only a one-term governor, so it's a little different. But so going down there to protect some of the things that uh, Medicaid expansion would allow us to, to fund and uh, pass one house. So expansion passed in one house, right. the House of Delegates, but not in the Senate. So they're having larger conversations about that in terms of funding, but I was advocating on the continuing the, le- the spending that we uh, were having around uh, child hunger and school nutrition programs. So one uh, additional issue, and you know, additional to the ones you were just talking about that you had a hand in was um, some gun legislation that went through in Virginia. Um, and as we know from what we've learned, um, it was really a big debate, and there was a big piece of legislation that was on the brink of getting passed, but in the last few hours wasn't didn't think you didn't think you were going to get there basically. Um, and you were the individual that stepped in and really pushed it over the finish line. Could you talk a bit about how you sort of saved that legislation from collapse? How your influence was felt in the room? Well, I think that, again, I don't like to take so much credit. Um, I did happen to be in the right place <laughs> at the credit. right time. <laughs> right place in the right time. So uh, Terry was out. He was at an event, um, you know, far away, had, you know, and in a helicopter coming mm-hmm. back when all of this kind of came down. And we heard that um, we knew that the other side had broken a, a deal, a, a gentleman's deal about how are we going to talk about the deal, what, you know, what they got, what we got in terms of the negotiation. It was the first gun legislation in 24 years in Virginia, which is significant. Um, it's very significant at the time. And the legislature, the Republican legislature, was very anti-gun uh, regulation of any kind. So this was historic. All of the bills that Terry had proposed before had been vetoed, even in subcommittee. And nothing had seen the light of day um, in three years. And so this was a big deal. And um, we didn't get everything we wanted. We There was a, uh, a provision that the Republicans were afraid that nationally they would lose this opportunity for concealed carry permits to be recognized. And that's a current issue today mm-hmm. in the Congress, uh, recognized across state lines. They're trying to get it so that it's automatic that every state has to recognize the concealed carry permit of, of other states. And because that federal issue was going on in Virginia, the Republicans were trying to, uh, were worried they weren't going to get the federal legislation. They were very concerned about getting a concealed carry permit um, approval from the state level so that if you had an, again, if you had a permit from another state, you could come into Virginia and that, that permit would be good in Virginia. Not something my husband and I or anybody in our administration thought was necessarily a good idea. Some states have training to get those permits. Other states don't. Uh, we do but uh, in Virginia, but a lot of states just pretty much anybody can go and get a gun and have a king still carry. Um, so whatever the standards of where the other states were, that's what Virginia was going to adopt. We, on the other hand, said, okay, um, we will agree to that, even though it's not our, but most people, this was the thinking, 
most people who have a concealed carry um, in most states know what they're doing, went through some training, and that sort of thing. Those are not the folks that are generally, and I'm making generalizations that could come back to me, but I'm saying those are not the mm-hmm. people that are involved in mass shootings or, or necessarily, um, if you're willing to carry one and people know you carry one, then you're pretty much, people in the community know, and it, you're not likely the one that's committing crimes. Um, but the what we were able to get through on our side of it was the first ever um, temporary restraining order bill that said if you have um, committed if you have a temporary restraining order against you for domestic violence, that you have to turn in your gun. This helps police within 24 hours. Or as we had negotiated the deal, it would be um, it would be a misdemeanor and a, and a really tough misdemeanor. Um, the other thing that we were able to get through that piece of legislation was that state police would have at every gun show, gun show loopholes are a big deal in Virginia and uh, uh, a really dangerous um, opportunity for for the rest of the country because many guns are purchased through gun shows, the gun show loophole in Virginia. And um, in fact, Mayor Bloomberg says, you know, really can track, had, had tracked that many of the gun violence in New York City was related to guns purchased in Virginia without background checks. So um, at the loophole, at the gun shows, you don't require a background check. His legislation would have funded, did fund state police to be present on site so that private sellers didn't have the excuse that, oh, I'm doing a private sale, you know, I couldn't get a background check. If you go to a retail seller like Dick's, like Walmart, you have to get a background check. Uh, it's very, it doesn't do everything, but it, it's something. Um, and it only takes three minutes. But if you're at a gun show and you're just doing a private sale in Virginia, you don't have to do a background check. So the idea was that if you had state police available to do the background checks, that eventually... Sadly, crime would be committed, and there may be a negligence standard that would apply because this private seller couldn't say, well, I was at a gun show. I couldn't uh, do a background check. So we now have state police at all the gun shows there and available if a private seller chooses to take uh, to, to, to ask for one. Um, but in any event, so this is a long story, and I'm sorry, but it was all, it, it's involved in its policy, so it's detailed. But So when the deal was falling apart and I had asked for, okay, so what are the late, what is, where does the deal stand now? What's the latest that we have agreed to? And they said it was a, I can't remember the class misdemeanor that it was if you didn't turn in your gun within 24 hours. And I said, misdemeanor, I mean, that's got to be a felony. Why would that not be a felony? Well, a felony so much more significant because if you, if you have a felony, you can't own a gun for the rest of your life. So if we're talking about people who are involved in domestic violence, that's a big deal. The other part of that 24-hour rule that's so significant is the problem with um, police going in and trying to confiscate weapons. If there's no, there was no standard for that. They'd had to have a court order, and then they had to go in and try to find, it. say, someone in a domestic dispute told the judge, he has a gun. I'm worried about that gun. Well, they have to convince that judge to give a court order to get the police... Police don't want to go into someone's home and try to confiscate right. it. That's a very dangerous place for law enforcement to be. It also escalates the potential for violence in the moment mm-hmm. so that it could stir up whatever. So the fact that they're required to turn it in puts the burden back on the, um, the offender, the, the, the violent actor that has a TRO against them. So that was a big deal. We're very proud of it. 
it's not everything, but it was it was a big deal. When we put that back the Repub- as an option, the Republicans accepted that felony, and that is really gave significant teeth to this to this new law in Virginia that we're we're proud of. It's not everything, um, but we feel like we made some good progress. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Politico's As Real People uh, is a very timely one, uh, as we are in March, which means March Madness, which is very exciting for those basketball-inclined uh, political fans. Um, which, if you have not noticed, Politico, uh, actually, the news, uh, the political news outlet, is running a, a pool this year for anyone who's uh, open to getting involved, um, as well as sort of this town VIPs, um, one of which is actually performing very well, uh, who is a friend of Jew politics, and that is um, Nadim El-Shami, who is a fellow here. Uh, this semester of geopolitics and is in second place in the Politico bracket. Um, so check that out. Way to go, Nadine. Big shout out there. I am doing significantly less well on that. But hey, there's lots of time to catch up. Justin, what rank are you in the world right now? Uh, okay, so in ESPN, I'm like 5 million. But in Playbook, I'm like a solid like 1,300. That's not bad. Right? I feel good about that. I'm 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 feeling good about that for you. It's like 1,300 out of 4,000, which isn't fantastic. But, you know. And of course, this gun legislation was not your only legislative priority while you were first lady. You know, you worked on quite a few things. For example, you talked earlier about child nutrition, about military service, military mm-hmm. families. Um, of all the legislative priorities you worked on, uh, where do you think you're going to have the most impact in five years and 10 years? Well, I do believe on the child nutrition work, which is, you know, a hungry child to me is, you know, this has to be our type priority. It doesn't you know, gun laws are complicated and we are, uh, we have to keep doing everything we can to, to push back. But the simple idea that a child in this country should not be hungry appeals to every political persuasion. You know, it, it is not a partisan issue. It really is something that everyone can agree on, that in a country as rich in resources as ours, that there should be no hungry children. Um, and so, and that we're just, that's not our character as Americans, right? We just would always give help to someone who needs it, but particularly a child who is in a situation by no control of their own circumstances. I do believe that work will be most lasting for a couple of reasons. It, it, was, um, it was bipartisan. It's sustainable because once schools, for instance, let's take breakfast after the bill, we worked very hard to encourage schools to, and now over a thousand schools in Virginia are doing breakfast after the bell, making breakfast part of the school day, just like lunch is part of the school mm-hmm. day. That opportunity is there for every kid who wants to have school lunch. If, when you talk about school breakfast, it was before the bell. So you're asking a child to self-identify as being qualified for a free and reduced lunch by which they then get a breakfast. When we make it part of the school day, that takes away the stigma it could, uh, for these kids and their it gives them more meaningful access to breakfast. Once schools flip from a before the bell to an after the bell um, breakfast model, they don't generally go back because they can see the teachers see more attention, more focus, less behavioral problems. Um, and so I think the work and the resources are there. It was just a question of the schools applying and, and serving the breakfast and getting participation up. It's also going to improve the quality of food over time because there's more, more money in the program. What many people don't know is that cafeterias operate as a standalone business, as a for-profit business. They don't get funding from the school board. Mm-hmm. Really, they get the USDA reimbursements. 
and that's pretty much it. They have to hire their cafeteria workers, buy the food, serve the food, all within a very small amount of money. It's like $1.35 for breakfast, $1.50, and then for lunch it's a little bit more, 2 or 3 $4. But I think trying to go out and buy a good meal for that amount of money, these people, and workers in cafeterias and their schools do an amazing job. And if you haven't looked at school lunch lately, I don't know what it was like when you all, where you all went to school. It has a, you know, there's a certain reputation there, but really the focus that's grown around the quality of food and what we're serving kids, meal standards, it's really improved dramatically. And we know we still have work to do. Same with summer meals. Once you partner a nonprofit with a school district and you're able to serve kids and families over the summer, I mean, generally that's a win-win for the community. And it's just helping put, remove the barriers, put the, you know, help uh, create um, partnerships. And uh, I think that work will, uh, once we've established those partnerships and communities, the work goes on and, and uh, they continue to innovate about how can we do this differently? How can we figure out an after-school program or a little bit of homework time in the after the school day's over so a child can have you know, a snack before they go home or a dinner before they go home? Because I think other part is not only just how we changed um, the fact that we created more opportunities for breakfast, for summer, for after school, but that we raised awareness of the issue because hunger is a very invisible um, condition and it's not something that there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of, um, um, ask, you know, it, it, it's not an easy thing for people to see and it's not an easy thing for someone to experience to talk about, especially a young person. Um, and so I think just by raising the level of conversation and awareness that, you know, that will be, I hope, you know, probably maybe the most important thing that I had a role in. We do certainly hope that the hard work you've put in um, over that, uh, over the past four years will continue on um, in the next administration in Virginia and across the country, of course. Um, so we are moving towards uh, the end here. We have one more segment and it's a fan favorite of Fly on the Wall. Um, and that's our lightning round. So how our lightning round works is we have oh boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have a few questions we're going to ask you, um, quick, sort of fun ones, um, and you're just going to give first answer that pops into your head. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, lightning round number one. Who's going to take back the House in 2018? Oh, that's easy. The Democrats. They're <laughs> picking up a lot of seats. And I think we have a really good chance to take it back. Great. What was your favorite part about going to school in D.C.? internships I just the opportunity you know to have the metro get around really have experiential learning opportunities honestly and so many so many colleges and young people here and and having government right here it was a lot of fun I mean really was it's a very unique city there's no other city okay. in the world like Washington DC we definitely understand that for sure um, and then final one this is maybe the toughest one do you think Medicaid expansion will pass in Virginia this session I have to believe. If yeah. I believe, it will happen. I do believe it will happen. Yes. If I say it, it'll happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. A lot of we'll hope go there. with that. Dorothy McCullough, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Uh, we have definitely learned a lot from you, uh, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Justin. Great to be here.
Thank you so much to Dorothy for joining us on the pod this week. Um, the thing I enjoyed most, I think, and we talked a little bit about this before we brought her in, but really just following her career path from literally before even getting to college, um, being involved in the world of politics, um, understanding like what's going on in the national sphere. Like you heard her talk about her family's um, interactions with the Carter campaign, um, following that really the whole way to where she is today, getting involved in, really deeply involved too, in, in a lots of issues that are very important to um, Virginians in her case um, uh, that don't always get the sort of attention that you see in like mainstream political talk. Yeah. And I think the great thing about Dorothy, and you know this by listening to her for like 30 seconds, is how passionate she is about public service. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's very clear. This is something she's wanted to get into her entire life. Um, And she just really has a passion and a drive to make the world a better place. Um, which is fantastic. And so. really excited to talk to students about it too, people who are sort of where we're at, um, which is looking forward towards a career um, of politics or public service. So de- definitely stop by her discussion groups. Monday at 2 p.m. Mondays, um, and also her office hours if you want to talk to her more. Yep, you can find those office hours at politics.georgetown.edu and uh, check them out there. Um, great. Uh, so we have uh, a fantastic slate of episodes coming up for you all in the next couple of weeks. We, we are not stopping. No, it's scary though. We're almost uh, close to the end of the season. Yeah. The end of the semester. Wow, I really need my life together. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but stay tuned for that. Um, as always, check us out on social media where you'll see those Friday uh, name releases um, and then our Sunday episode releases. As always, follow us. Let us know your feedback, thoughts, things like that. And have a fantastic week.